0: Dolphins,
1: the greatest football team. We take the ball from goal to goal like no one's ever seen. We're in the air, we're on the ground, we're always in control. And when you say Miami, you're talking super so bow, cause we're
2: the Miami Dolphins. Miami Dolphins. Welcome to the Geordie Holtburg Show. I'm your special guest, Duriel Harris, former wide receiver of the Miami Dolphins. And yes, that song still sounds great to me. That's my theme song. Right now I'm with producer extraordinaire Mr. James Mess. Hey, how are you, man? How you doing, Mr. Duriel? I'm doing all right myself. I'm doing great. Hey, listen, I was doing a little research on you, man. Oh yeah. And uh, they tell me you're a former wide receiver yourself.
3: <laughs> yeah, I I did play one year of organized football at wide receiver, where I actually had the pads on. I was I was playing a BYYA. I I was wide receiver one. I was pretty much the X, but. I didn't get a single catch that year, which is fine. No, but, but we won the Turkey Bowl, so it's fine. Okay, well, and we we won it all, so it, it was all fine. Wasn't it? Wasn't
2: a wishbone team? You didn't get a pass thrown to you? No, <laughs> it, I mean,
3: I mean, no, it wasn't necessarily wishbone. We, kind of more of just an I form for okay. the most part. Mainly a fullback, one tight end, two outside receivers. I was on the, I was always on the left side, but I'm, we, it was, it, it ended up being sweeps, dives, powers. Halfback screen or the QB would get sacked. So
2: <laughs> three, three yards in a cloud of dust in high school, man. Uh, pretty, much, <laughs> I pretty much. I would have switch positions. <laughs>
3: oh, I, I wish, but I, I was too small to play running back. So I was like, ah, I'll go outside. We'll, we'll make it easy. I would run double moves, and I'd always be open. But I'm looking. <laughs> I look back, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> QB QB's either scrambling himself for yards or he just got sacked. Nice. Oh
2: man, I'd love to see some footage of that. But anyway, it's nice, nice to meet you. It's great to be here with you. Uh, we're going to have a good time today, talk a little football, uh, talk a little about the SEC media days. We've got some great guests lined up for the show. We've got uh, 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 Billy uh, what's his name Bruni?
3: Matthew Bruni? Yeah, Matthew
2: Bruni and Ross Jackson. Looking forward to talking to those guys, Uh, especially Ross. He's uh, locked on Saints, and I want to hear what he has to say about the upcoming year with the Saints, especially their wide receiver position. They've uh, upgraded that position through the draft and uh, got the receiver out of Ohio State. So I'm interested to hear his take on uh, how that guy's going to be this year. And then when we talk to uh, Matthew Bruni, he's going to kind of bring us inside the LSU locker room and Gives an idea of what to expect this year. I know they've got some great young receivers, and I think that's going to be the position. To hopefully, uh, they can count off a of big plays, and then, uh, hopefully, the line is and make some improvements. You know, keep those guys off the quarterback. So, looking forward to those special guests. Uh, they should really have some insight on uh, both those teams, the Saints and the uh, Tigers.
3: And then we got at two thirty. It'll be RP three, the big bald and beautiful one. He'll he'll recap. The circus that was SEC Media Days.
2: Yes, it was, and I tell you, I was waiting for the fireworks to happen with uh, Jimbo Fisher and, and Nick Saban. You know, they got into that little spat uh, a couple weeks ago about uh, NIL and, and buying players. So let's see if they play nice for the media days. But no matter what they say today, I'm waiting till they play each other, and let's see if those guys give an honest handshake to each other.
3: Yeah, we'll see how their reaction is. Let's see. Let's see if it's a good, honest one, or if it's just a quick like whatever, get out of my
2: face. It depends on who wins. That's if they have a handshake. Yeah, now, yeah, if wins, they'll shake hands. If, if Jimbo wins, I don't think they're going to shake hands.
3: <laughs> Jimbo might reach for it, but then Nick, Nick will be, be like, psych, right, I'm out of here, get out of my face. Yeah.
2: Well, i uh, give you a little background myself, James. Uh, I'm from uh, Port Arthur, Texas. We like to say it's the pro football capital of the world. We've had a lot of uh, athletes to come from that area. In fact, my high school uh, has the most uh, – golden footballs in the showcase Uh, for the 50 year reunion of the nfl they gave uh, two golden footballs out to every player who played in the super bowl you got one and one went to your high school my high school out of a little town about 40,000 people has six golden footballs in the showcase we've had six different guys to play in a super bowl from a town that size that's incredible
3: that's that's pretty good man six different players
2: yes it was so much talent there growing up if, if you got out of the uh, district in our area uh, nine times out of ten, you were in the state playoff game because it was just that much competition And what they call the Golden Triangle. It was just tough to get out to make it to Houston or make it to the state playoff. So come on a real rich background history there and pour off the Texas. And uh, hopefully we get some of those guys uh, in future shows to come on and, and tell about the uh, extraordinary football that we have there as far as high school is concerned.
3: Oh, that sounds like a fun time. Now, I I I I know you said you did a little bit of research of me. I did a little research of you since, I mean, we we kind of make the joke around here since I'm the youngest. I mean, I I did I wasn't able to watch you play. So, uh, you you played for the Dolphins for ten years, right? Yes, yes ten, 10 years, years. And I mean, so you you were able to play with uh Bob Greasy, right?
2: Yes, yes. In fact, I tell you interesting story about that. Uh, I was sitting in the locker room before a game, and uh, they have trivia questions there. So it showed up, who caught Bob Brees' last touchdown? I turned the page, and it's me. I didn't realize (laughs) that. (laughs) Uh, He got hurt that year, and I caught the last touchdown. It was against the Oilers, and uh, I had no idea the time it was going to be the last uh, touchdown. So years later, I chased him down and got him to sign a football, and I signed it. And just to commemorate that, to catch his last touchdown, a real honor to play with the guy. Uh, probably the smartest quarterback I've ever been around. With with grease in the huddle, James. I mean, we would go 80 yards down the field, and you wouldn't even break a sweat because <laughs> he puts in the perfect offensive play against that defense to make it so easy that we could just go down like it was nothing. In fact, some games we scored so easily. We kind of let the adrenaline fall and the emotions fall because it was just too easy. And then we have to kind of like wrap it back up when the game got tight. But just a real true field general, and what an honor to play with a guy like that. He just made everybody's job easier. He knew where everybody was going to be, and uh, just a, just a smart quarterback.
3: Now, now, what I'm wondering is, since I mean he's pretty well known, but do you think he's relatively underrated as a QB in his legacy?
2: Yeah, he was because he didn't uh, have to throw the ball to beat you. Nowadays, you know, the game has changed so much. It's a passing game. You look at the quarterbacks with those stats and throwing 50 touchdowns but Bob Greasy did things that you that doesn't show up in a stat book. He put you in the right situation at the right time. Uh, the defense couldn't disguise or play to fool him. He could see right through it. He When he called an audible, you're going to be wide open. He was like a second coach on the field. In fact, he was the coach. She was on the sideline ahead, man. But Bob Greasy uh, eventually uh, had a lot of leeway in the calling the plays and and putting us in those positions to win. So uh, things he did, he didn't get the stats for it, but we all knew – how important he was to the team because he gave everybody a chance to be successful by putting you in the right situation.
3: So, so he, if he knew what to audible to, he, he was a big guy of studying film in the, in the uh, film room.
2: We would leave the, uh, after practice, we shower up and walk by, and there was Greasy and the quarterbacks and coaches watching film. Sometimes we'd get off the field at 5, 5.30. They're in there watching film, and they would tell us they wouldn't get home like 7, 7.30. I said, oh, man, I'm glad I'm not playing quarterback. You know, 5 o'clock, we were ready to just go home and shower and, and just enjoy ourselves. But those quarterbacks, uh, they really put the time in, and they were uh, always prepared. And, and hands off to Coach Shula. You know, we're talking about uh, – Coaches and new coaches and and having structure. Well, Coach Shula, you always knew where you are going to be on the field. He had it down to every minute. He'd get the overhead projector going, and he would show us where we're going each station. And I bring that up to tell you that once I was traded to the Cleveland Browns, had zero structure. We got there, and we're in the middle of practice, and the coaches call a timeout because they don't know what the next drill is. And we're sitting around waiting what to do. Then they see you get a water break. And that's when I realized – just how organized Coach Shuler was because I came from the best and went to the worst. <laughs> and, man, it made me appreciate the guy, how organized he was, how disciplined he was, uh, stickler about time. If the meeting is three, don't show up at three, be there at five, till, because I might want to start earlier. Just those things. Uh, his definition of luck, I remember for, forever. To Coach Shuler, wasn't no such thing as luck. Luck was when preparation meets opportunity. And I tell you, it's no truer statement than that because a lot of times the guy go down and the backup come in and do a better job. Oh, that guy was lucky that somebody got hurt. No, he was ready when his opportunity came through preparation and opportunity. So just a, a, a great coach in Don Shue, the greatest ever play of the game. And, and so many of the things I learned with him, it carries over to everyday life. So I, I'm a big fan of his, and I just feel honored to have been played for the greatest coach in the NFL. Hey,
3: that, that's awesome. Now, I, you, you talked about going to Cleveland, and, and you were only there for about half the season because you did get traded that same that same year in 84, right?
2: Yes, I did. In fact, when someone trades you to Cleveland, you're being punished. <laughs> <laughs> I go to, to Cleveland from South Florida, and uh, it's so cold, and I get there in the spring for the for the uh, OTAs, and I go through a park there called the Emerald Necklace. I see all these people on blankets, In bathing suits, and there's no water, but they're on a blanket in a bathing suit. So I asked Paul Warfield, who was showing me around, I said, Paul, why are these people out here in bathing suits? He said, Durial, we only get about 20 days of sunshine a year, so people (laughs) take advantage of it. When he told me that, James, I knew I was in trouble. I said, I'm going to be gone the first snowfall. And sure enough, the first heavy snowfall came, I get traded and uh, put on waivers and got claimed by the Cowboys. So I was happy to be out of there.
3: And, and and you and when you got on waivers you were picked up by Dallas
2: yes and uh I'm from Texas and uh I kind of wanted to play for Dallas for a similar reasons my grandma's a huge football fan lived in Dallas and she was just so happy that I was coming to Dallas so uh, I put up with it mainly to please her but if i had my choice it would have been Dallas it may have been the Raiders but uh, I tried to make the best <laughs> of it with Dallas and being from Texas to uh be there play in front of the local uh local people and people watch me through high school they got a chance to see because all my other career only the time they would see me was on like a Monday night because I was in South Florida and all the games were on the east coast.
3: Okay, yeah. Um and I'm I'm wondering so could you talk a little more about the Miami Dolphins, just the organization as a whole? Or are you still able to go into like the facilities?
2: Yeah, the, the Dolphins are a great organization. Uh, they invite uh, all the players back for what they call Alumni Weekend. They invite everybody to come back and uh, put you up in a hotel. They put a golf tournament on for us. They have a, a dinner. And then we get to sit in a, a couple skyboxes and watch the game with all the all the uh, servers and amenities that you get out of a skybox. The only way to watch a game from now from me, put me in a skybox. You know, nobody's near you in the back in the stands. You've got a, a butler there waiting on you. So the Dolphins take great care of us, and it's just a first-class organization. So I look forward to going back every year and seeing some of the guys I, I hadn't seen in years. You know, you go to battle with these guys, I guess you could use the analogy like guys who were together in the arm in a foxhole. You know, they became great friends, and it goes different ways. And then if you have a reunion, you come back together and you see everybody. It's just like a big family reunion when we get together for alumni weekend.
3: Oh, that that's awesome. I, I I mean, my I remember my dream was always to play wide receiver in the NFL, and unfortunately, I don't feel like I have the build for it. But man, it's it's good to talk to somebody that did play, and, and just kind of get an idea of how, how it was like.
2: It was uh it was a great opportunity, first of all. I had the ability to get there and play. But I had some great coaches. Uh Howard Snellenberg was a receiver coach. And the first he did thing he did was to take me in a room and he pulled out some film of Paul Warfield. Now, James, I you know you too young you know the guy, but this was a, <laughs> one of the greatest receivers to play the game for the Dolphins. Just to tell you how good he is. Guys catch hundred and twenty balls nowadays to make the Pro Bowl. Paul Warfield made the Pro Bowl on 29 receptions. (sighs) Now, to do that, that says a lot about you right there. The guy was always double-covered, but he was probably the best pure receiver there ever was. So I got a chance to watch his film, and I tried to emulate some of the things that he did, and uh, I was very successful, and uh, having Howard Sternberg and Paul Warfield were two big keys in that success.
3: Wow. And and you said he he only caught 29 balls that year, but he had 11 touchdowns out of it.
2: Yeah, I mean you you, could, was, you couldn't cover the guy. So they were they were double covering a guy when you know Dolphins was a running team. We had Larry Zonka, Larry Little, uh, uh Jim, Jim Kick, Mercury Morris. So we were a running team, but when we did throw those 10 passes a game, Warfield was catching seven or eight of them and he couldn't be stopped. So he was just an incredible receiver. In fact, uh if you watched the game today, uh, when receivers have bump and run, we use what we call a swim technique. They go to bump you, and we just over them, slap the hands and go over. It's called a swim technique. Yeah. Now everybody's doing that. Well, Paul Warfield invented that move. It started in Miami, and people watched us do it, and then it just made its way throughout the league, nice down to the college level. So I just give Paul Warfield all the credit in the world. He was just a great receiver and a great guy.
3: And it's crazy because you don't – you don't see just a swim move from wide receivers. You see it a lot from edge rushers.
2: Edge rushers, linemen, everybody's using that because it's just a great technique. And it's if you think about it as far as a it's like a martial arts move. You're using their force against them. When they come to jam you, you're redirecting that force and energy and you go by them. And by the time they recover from that and as they put forward, you're already gone. And so he made it where guys were scared to death to come up and play bump and run because they couldn't get contact on him. And if you can't bump a guy off the line, you're beat already. So that was a great release move that we used a lot to help us get away from guys. So it was just a a, a great experience for me to play for a great team and a great coach. Well, we have to take a timeout. Uh, more on the Jordy Hallberg Show coming up here on – the game, 103.7 Lafayette and 104.1 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station and your home of the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros. We love
0: talking about sports. Yeah. You love listening to sports. Yep. Yeah. Sounds like we were meant to be together. Or at least friends with benefits. Aren't you glad you found us? Back to more of the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station.
3: You, yes you, can score a new Apple Watch by sending a simple text message. That's right, the game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles wants to hook you up with a new Apple Watch. All you have to do is win our brand new text All you have to do is join our brand new text club. Simply text GAME, G-A-M-E, to 337-283-8100. That's GAME to 337-283-8100. Once you join, you will be eligible to win an Apple Watch. Plus, you will have a ton of chances to score other great prizes, like Astros tickets and so much more. It's the GAME text club. Find out more at 1037thegame.com and 1041thegame.com.
2: Hi, welcome back to the Jolly Hallberg Show. I'm your special guest, Dorial Harris, uh, sitting in for the big guy. Uh, James, let's talk a little more football.
3: Oh, I love that. You, you, you're pulling my strings the right way. Now, yeah. since we're wide receivers, I'm curious. I, I kind of want to go back to Don Shula, and, and I, I want to I wanna know a little bit more. You, you said it was a run-heavy offense, but it was like, could you, could you go into more specifics?
2: Yeah, well, uh, the Dolphins were very successful early on with the running game because we had a 260-pound running back by the name of Larry Zonka who would run over everybody. When I first met him in the locker room, I thought he was one of the offensive line. When I look up, that same guy has a jersey on, saying 39. I say, oh, my God, I've never seen a running back that big. But Zonka was just a brute, James, and he was like uh, – he'd been a great mathematician because to him, the straightest – uh, direction to anything. is a straight line. He wouldn't try to avoid anyone, even the blockers. I'm blocking for him one game and I've got the defensive back to the outside. I'm thinking Zonk is going to cut off my hip and go to the inside. No. What does he do? He runs over me and the defensive back. And I get up. I'm hurt. I'm limping. I say, okay. That's the last time I turn my back on him. So from there on out, I'm blocking for the guy, but I'm looking over my shoulder to see where he is because I didn't want him to run over me again.
3: Oh, man, he, he he put fear into your soul with that running style.
2: Oh, he, uh, not only me, but in linebackers, defensive back, so many uh, defensive players, when they saw that guy coming, they would go dive at his ankles just to keep him being embarrassed by run over. So he was a brute, man.
3: Oh, and, and it kind of goes with just like any, any other one. Like looking at, I remember my first Saints memories was Jimmy Graham at tight end, and it's like, well, He's six seven. He played basketball, so people are trying just trying to clip his ankles to where it's like, how are we supposed to tackle him at the shoulders or at the chest? I mean, he, he's way too big. It's, and,
2: it's impossible. And then we had we go from Larry Zonk, and then we had a guy, uh, Mercury Mars, play at West Texas State. Mercury was the quickest running back I've ever seen in my life on the field, and he had, back then the Dolphins had the AstroTurf, <clears throat> and not everybody knew how to run on the turf, but Mercury would be like he was just skating or sliding on the turf. Just never would really plant, but he was able just to move and make people miss, and just a, a fantastic running back. So you had the the, the brute in uh, Larry Zonka. Then you had the, the speed of a Mercury Mars and being a shifty run as he was. That was just a perfect combination. So we were never in a third and long passing situation. That's why we ran the ball so much. We'd end up with third and three, third and two, and they'd run the ball so Uh, It was great to be on a winning team, but had it not been for the Dolphins winning, I would have been a very frustrated wide receiver, (laughs) being on a losing team and still not getting the ball. Yeah,
3: because we were talking about it during the break, and you were talking about how, I mean, at one point, Dolphins were only throwing eight, nine, ten times a game.
2: Yes, with with three receivers. Divide that up, will you, and see if you <laughs> got a happy receiver These days, if a guy's not getting 10, 10 uh, targets a game, he's unhappy. So we just knew that we had to make the most of that situation, and I think that just puts in that mindset to, when you get it, make the most of it. I can never imagine uh, a college scout tell me when I was coming out of New Mexico State, uh, my senior year, the coach decided to go to the wishbone, and the guy said, Durial, you're not going to have that many touches, make the most of them. Well, the scout didn't know it. We had an unsuccessful wishbone. <laughs> so by the second half, we would broke the wishbone. We go to a pro offense. And James, my senior year of running wishbone, I caught more passes in a wishbone than I did the previous year in a pro offense. I caught 34 receptions in a wishbone. That, those numbers are unheard of. So by being an successful wishbone, it just helped me out to get more exposure and get noticed by the big guys in the NFL. Oh,
3: that, that, that's, that's so good. Um, and when you were on the dolphins, I mean, whenever y'all did pass, what kind of, did y'all run any sort of concepts or like, what, what was like a typical route y'all would y'all would run?
2: Well, uh, some of it, we had uh, the hots and all, but just to give you an idea of typical play. We'd have like a, uh, rocket to red, right. 70 halfback short option, uh, X, Y, Z post. And that was, that's telling you right there to play everything you need to know. You know, you're going to run a, a wide, you're going to run a post, and the other wide out. The running back has the the option. He comes out, he go in or out, and you're like a a, a a last look for the quarterback when they come to tell you. And then you have to read. If the linebacker blitzed on my side, forget what the play was called, you have to break your right off cause there's no protection. So it, it was a very complicated offense, and you had to really – uh, read the defenses, know your keys. You could just line up and run a route. You had to watch the line and see whether they're in a, a three-man line or a four-man line, and you had your keys to break routes, rates off. And if you didn't break the route off, Grease would just throw it at your head to remind <laughs> you that you're a hot receiver, and you don't want to get Greasy upset or get him hit by a, a 280-pound line when you'd probably never play again. So uh, It was a lot of pressure on you, but you learned uh, the offense, you learned the audibles, and then Coach Shula being so organized, we talk about situations where if it's third and such and such and they play this, what are we going to do? What do we like? And just by you knowing what we like, uh, so if you can't hear, you're kind of on the same page with the quarterback. Because a lot of times it's so noisy, you can't hear out there when the quarterback is audible. But you know by that defense what you talked about, and you know the play is going to be changed, and you just hope that you're on the right snap count so you don't jump off sides. But it's a lot into it. You have to keep your head up and – Look and see what's going on, and you still have to run your route. So it—it's uh, the game is a—it's uh, it, a complicated game, but if you just focus, uh, you can do it. And it's just like uh, riding a bike. You know, once you do it, you never forget how.
3: And, and whenever y'all would audible, I mean, so in the play you would said like a Z was a po- was doing a post. Yes. And I mean, if you're gonna audible, I'm guessing if that's co- if that's the case and the blitz is coming from that side. Uh, would you have to audible so, to like a quick five-yard no, in route or like no, a drag?
2: No, you read the audible, and that's your automatic route. You run a seven-yard, uh, what do you call a slant. Okay. And automatically you know because they don't have time to to call that. You know, you have to know what the audible is against that defense. And then to throw a real kick into it, the quarterback comes to the line, okay, and you have a play call, say it would be a, like dive 34-on-2. Well, we're taught if the quarterback repeats the snap count, the next thing you hear is audible. So if he comes to the line and say, you know, 232, the next thing come out of his mouth is a new play. Then he might say, 570, 570. You know, he's changed the play uh-huh. to a passing route, and then it's always on one when he audibles. So there's, the snap count on two is gone, and now it's on one. And these type of things you have to know, and it just comes automatically. When he audibles, you know we hear five, okay, the new play is coming and and sometimes your quarterback will go by colors like uh, for us we have an orange would be a hot color so there's a, s- a system of colors and numbers that you know the hots and then you have your offensive reads and defensive reads and then if you're lucky there's no blitzes then you can run the play that's called and huddle that's the easiest thing to do run the play that's <laughs> called and huddle but you have to be ready for all the adjustments you make before the whistle is blown on, on like a 35 second uh, to get a playoff
3: so so if you're doing a fi- if if he audibles like and he's he gets to the line and he says like a five seventy, is the five seventy like, would the five be like, for the X and that's a like an out route and then this the seven is for the the Y receiver and he runs a post and then, the zero is maybe like a like a curl.
2: Yeah, I, I played the weak side, so if he said seventy, that's a strong side route. He's going to look to the Z first on the slant, and me, I'm on the backside. I would run like an out as a safety valve. So by the number he calls, you knew if it was going right or left. But the Dolphins, being a, a great team they are, as receiver, you have to learn the other position just as much, the, uh, the other uh, wide receiver, the Z route. Because in two-minute drills, I watch TV today, if I see a team in a two-minute offense and the receivers are running across the field wasting time, I know then they're not prepared to run the other position's route. To save time in a two-minute drill, everybody needs to know everybody's route. So if I'm on the left side and he calls a play, a strong side play to the left side, but I'm a weak side receiver, now I've got to back off the line, the tight end comes up, I'm now that strong side receiver Mm because we stay on the same side to save time. And that's in a two-minute drill, time is so important. Call two plays in the huddle and you go with it and you just stay on the side you are. Well, well I hope that I didn't confuse you too much with that (laughs) audible system, but – uh, we have to take a, a time out here, but more of the Jordy Hallberg show when we come back. You're listening to The Game, 103.7 Lafayette, 104.1 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, and the home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros.
0: Download the free The Game mobile app for Android and Apple devices. No matter where you are in the country,
2: you can listen to The Game.
0: 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
3: The game 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles is taking over the big easy for Sunbelt Media Days. Tune in Tuesday, July 26th and Wednesday, July 27th as RP3 and Company, Footnotes, and Crunch Time will be broadcasting from New Orleans for the game's live from Sunbelt Media Day coverage presented by Next Home Cutting Edge Realty and The Wetlands. Tune in for the takeover of the Biggies right here on the Game, Southwest Louisiana Sports
2: Station. Welcome back to the Jordy Halberg Show. I'm your guest host Duriel Harris, former All-Pro wide receiver for the Miami Dolphins, and joining me to recap the circus that was called SEC Media Days in Atlanta is our friend Raymond Parks III, host of RP3 and Company. Raymond, how you doing, man?
4: I'm doing good, man. I'm a little worried, though, man. You're doing so well doing this guest hosting thing. I, I feel like I may be getting Wally pipped here. You know, you're coming from my job, it feels like, man. I need to just move over and just
2: let you take over. No, I'm just I'm just your uh, designated hitter, man.
4: <laughs> for now, for now, for now. You, you, you're you, the designated hitter. you the pinch hitter for now, brother. So, no, man, it's, it, it, I'm happy to be here with you and appreciate you filling in for uh, Jordy Holberg.
2: Well, thank you. Uh, everybody wants to know, How did the LSU Tigers do at media days? How was Brian Kelly?
4: You know, he was received extremely well. I know some LSU fans had reservations or have had reservations about Brian Kelly, whether or not he could recruit down here, whether or not he could coach in the SEC. And talking to other media members along Radio Row there in Atlanta, inside the College Football Hall of Fame, talking to SEC uh, administrators, officials as well, they were very impressed with Brian Kelly. And look, it's just a reflection of what he's bringing to Baton Rouge. And, and here's the thing. The program had been run with a certain level of messiness and chaos for the better part of two years. That's what happened. And that's how the program got off the rails, is because it there was a lack of organization, a lack of accountability, and Brian Kelly's all about that. And he's won. He's the winningest coach in Notre Dame history. Now, yes, The argument is always, the rebuttal is, he didn't win a national championship. It is immensely difficult to recruit at Notre Dame. This is not Newt Rockne's era of Notre Dame. It wasn't even Lou Holtz's era of Notre Dame. It is a completely different beast. The academic restrictions alone there at Notre Dame make it an immensely difficult place to recruit. Because of that, you feel like you maybe got one hand tied behind your back, and yet, he still averaged 10 wins a year. He still got them into the college football playoff. He still played for national championships. So he is organized. And when you speak to the players that were there as well, I got a chance to speak with Jack Besh, former STM Cougar local product here, part of that trifecta of kids from Acadiana that's lining up at wide receiver for the Tigers this coming season. They love him. And he said, look, Brian Kelly, Coach Kelly came in. He has a vision for us. He's letting us know exactly what we're going to be doing what our goal is, what is expected of us. Kids, you know this, as someone who played college football and then had a very successful career in the NFL, there are times where structure and discipline irritate you, frustrate you, and you want to rebel against it, but you know better than anyone, kids, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, need that more than ever. Brian Kelly's going to bring that, and he had one of the more polished, honest, forthcoming presentations at Media Day, and it was really impressive. A lot of media folks maybe have changed their perception of what he can do in year one. The talent's still not quite there, right, because they barely had enough players to even field a team for the bowl game Um, (laughs) before he took over. There's still work to cut. He has his work cut out for him. Make no bones about it. But I think he may have changed people's perception of what he can do now that doesn't necessarily mean they change the perception of how good LSU is going to be this year.
2: Sure. Well, you got to have the players, but to have a coach that brings structure to any organization or team is so beneficial. Uh, I can relate to playing for Coach Shula. The guy was a winner, the best in the NFL. Once he said something, you could believe it because the guy has a track record that you can look at. So that's, that's In part, when you have a coach that had bring that type of resume to any team. Uh, let's, let's talk about the, the big elephant in the room. A couple weeks ago, we had a little argument between Jimbo Fisher, Nick (laughs) Saban, and Deion Sanders, of all people. (laughs) Yes. And everybody was waiting for Nick and Jimbo to get together and talk about it, and uh, they did. How do you think it was handled by those guys during SEC media days?
4: Saban, in the last few weeks heading into Atlanta, had been kind of diffusing or trying to diffuse the situation. Now, Greg Sankey gave both of them a tongue lashing. I also think – he had other people maybe step in, maybe some elder statesmen like, like a David Cutcliffe, who's now a special assistant to the commissioner. Uh, there were conversations that were had behind the scenes that said, hey, um, enough of this. Y'all acting like clowns. Get it together. Saban has taken a very kind of high road approach and trying to be somewhat apologetic and has tried to diffuse the situation in the last few weeks. We really didn't hear much from Jimbo, But I felt Jimbo did a very good job. He was the last of the 14 coaches to take the stage. I was sitting there in the audience there in the media area where he was taking the stage. And we were all waiting for him. And, of course, he was asked early on about it. He handled it very well. And he said, look, no ill. He, 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 He came out and said, I have no ill will towards Coach Saban and everything like that. He even kind of made a little bit of a joke. I think it's behind them. Uh, I think, it caught Jimbo off guard. But it, look, these are two really intelligent guys. They knew exactly what they were doing. Saban was letting all of the boosters know for the University of Alabama football team and the supporters, hey, a ms taking advantage of NIL. They're having millions of dollars being funneled into there to, to get their players, to buy their players. And look, they got the number one rated recruiting class of all time. Just not of... This year, but of all time. That's Nick's way. Nick doesn't say anything off the cuff, okay? That's Nick's way of saying, giving, t- giving a warning shot to all of the Bama supporters to be like, hey, um, it, you want us to c- continue competing and playing for national championships? You know what has to be done now. The money. Right, right. And, 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 and that was his way of doing that. And Jimbo's reaction, of course he's going to defend it because that's what he's supposed to do. Of course he's supposed to feel that his integrity has been called into question. I think you can call Jimbo's integrity into question for different things, in particular what he did at Florida State and buried them into a massive crater before leaving for you know nearly $100 million to lose four games a year. But I digress. He did take the high road, though. Jimbo did up there. And he played nice. So it was good it was it was nice to see that both of them, the the, the two big Titans, if you will, opted to take the high road and kind of put this behind them so we can start moving forward and start looking ahead towards the season.
2: Well, I'm gonna hold back my opinion until I see the handshake after the game this year. They never oh, tell me if it's over or not.
4: <laughs> we'll see. You know, somebody made a comment one time. I think, I think it was Scott Woodward, the, the LSU athletic director, made a comment and says, you know, I know better not to get into a fight between two boys from West Virginia. So you know, and that's where Jimbo and Nick are from. You know, they're they're they're, they're backwoods West Virginia boys. I like to tussle, so
2: they're not going to back down.
4: You <laughs> know, <laughs> they're not going to back down, brother.
2: Well, let's bring it back home and talk about the local Raging Cajuns and their new head coach Billy Napier. How did he fare in media days?
4: You know, Billy was here for four years in Lafayette, guiding the Raging Cajuns to unprecedented success. Uh, the the best four year stretch in program history and uh, draft picks and everything, and he did such a great job. He also cleaned up the program. The program had gotten a little messy uh, under former head coach Mark Hudspeth, uh, off-the-field discretions. Uh, we're talking multiple arrests. Uh, we're talking academic issues, things of that nature. And, and all. And they also started losing, right? Well, Billy came in, and it took a little while that first season. People forget that, that they were barely a 500-ball club, that were able was able to make it to a bowl game, but they won their division and then they won the division the next year and the year after and then they started winning ten games, eleven games, you know, outright conference championship last year. Uh, Billy was very humble taking the stage as the Florida Gators head coach, and I, I mentioned this to someone this earlier this week was he's a very non Florida Gators head coach, and what I mean by that is he's very down home. He's very, you know, down to earth, plain spoken. He doesn't covet controversy. He doesn't covet saying hot takes, you know. Uh, and he's he's not wound so tight, you know. He's wound tight. Most coaches are, but he's not like Jim McElwain. The pressure of being the Florida head coach derailed his coaching career there. Dan Mullen, the stress of being the Florida head coach derailed his career. It, you have to have a certain mentality. I believe Billy has that. He was very emotional during that. I asked him about what he learned during his four years here as a first-year head coach that he's implementing there, and he got a little choked up at the end of the answer there about how much gratitude he had for the folks in Lafayette and in Acadiana with, involved with the Louisiana Raging Cajuns. And then another reporter from Chattanooga asked him about his late father and what lessons he learned from his father who continued coaching while he was dealing with his illness that eventually took his life. And he, he nearly broke down in tears. You, you typically don't see that, right? You, you typically see very professional, on point, on brand. And Billy's just built different. Billy's not, not razzle-dazzle. You know, he, he's not what Mark Hudspeth was, where Hudspeth would go to a high school football game and come in on a helicopter for a recruiting thing he, he was a lot of flash right he was like billy ain't flash he's right. just not he's making potatoes
2: right.
4: um and, and that's why he's and he learned under saban as well right twice he coached under nick and a lot of his process is derived from what nick did at alabama in particular so i think he did a very good job at sec media days i think he handled it well it's not his forte being up on stage is not it He doesn't have the folksy charm and and can charm your pants off like Jimbo Fisher does. And he's not, you know, the guy that makes the room fall silent just by opening his mouth like Nick Saban does. But he did a very nice job. If Florida Gator fans are patient, because it's going to take time because the last coach, Dan Mullen, did not recruit. He did not make recruiting a priority. Believe it or not, 2021 and 2022, this gentleman saying, well, I don't pay attention to recruiting during the season. That's not how it works anymore. If you want to keep up, you have to recruit. Got to give Billy a couple years to kind of build up things, so to speak. So um, I think he did a very good job. But if Florida Gator fans are patient, which is a big what if.
2: Yeah, because that's a real hot bed, And patience <laughs> patience is something they've never had. I mean, after scoring uh, and all the success they've had there with Urban Meyer. So I hope they do allow him to, to get his program there to – Put his stamp on the team. I think they'll go a long way. But let's see how patient those Gator fans are going to be. All righty. Uh, we have to take a quick timeout. More of the Jordy Hallberg Show has come up here on The Game. 103.7 Lafayette and 104.1 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros. Welcome back to the Jordy Hallberg Show. I'm your special guest host, Durial Harris. I'm a wide receiver of the Miami Dolphins. Been great hanging out here and speaking with my main man, James Mesh. Hey, how's it going, man?
3: Oh, it's been so good so far. Now, I mean, we, we had that great interview with uh, RP3 just a minute ago.
2: Uh, yeah, we had the big guy. You know, they always send the big guns to cover the, the big media days. And he did a <laughs> great job and enlightened us to what was going on in Atlanta. And I look forward to uh, hearing what he does next week when they do the Sun Belt.
3: Oh, man. So, Sun Belt's good. Luckily, it won't be as long. It's only going to be two days instead of four days. So it it won't be as draining, and it'll be a lot closer to home in New Orleans.
2: Good, good. Well, it's been uh, great uh, talking with RP3, and uh, now I guess you and I were having some great conversations on the uh, NFL, and I just wanted to share with you one more thought. Uh, Coach Shula, I get asked all the time about, hey, what is it like uh, to play for Coach Shula? And I tell everybody, he's the, the greatest coach there is, and I was fortunate to play for him. And I tell you, James, as a as a guy uh, to get motivated, he's the only coach I ever had that could make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. He got guys so fired up, James, they would run through a wall for Coach Shula, and, and just the way he was, just a great motivator. And there was a famous uh, famous statement made by an old good old Texas boy, Coach Bum Phillips. I don't know if you heard this saying or not. But Bum Phillips said of Coach Shula said, he could take yours and you take his and yours to beat his. <laughs> <laughs> just, I mean, that was the greatest compliment he gave to Coach Shula. He could take someone else's team and beat his team. And when the Dolphins were at their uh, peak heyday, they only had three guys to make the Pro Bowl on defense. And because the role players came up and did such a great job by being motivated by Coach Shula, they all played like all pros. But in actuality, only three of them were voted to the Pro Bowl, and they went seventeen zero. Can you believe that? Oh
3: man, that that's crazy. Uh, and speaking of Coach Schul, I mean, you you just said he was uh he's really good at motivating. What did he do? Did he have like was it his speeches or did he bring in something like props? Like I, I know Sean Payton used to bring in props. Like I think he would put cheese in, in people's uh in lockers to be like, don't. Don't fall for the cheese, like the media being like, "Hey, yeah, y'all are like the best team right now." Like, don't fall for any of that. Just stay focused.
2: No, he didn't use any cheese. Uh, thank goodness. But no, he uh, he just talked to the players and he put it in such a way that he challenged you to to be your best. And uh, the analogies he used to get us ready, it uh, was just different. And with the with the track record ahead, you had to you know you bought into it. And when we played for Coach Shula. We were the least penalized team in the NFL, and everybody used to say, oh, the refs are cheating for the Dolphins. It wasn't that. It's the preparation we did. Coach Shula came out with this idea, offensive days and defensive days, you're going to run 10 perfect plays, and I never get an immediate meat details, okay? This could be done in about 25 minutes or it could be done in two hours. It's up to you guys. And what he would do is we'd go and run five perfect plays from each hash, James, and if somebody jumped offside at number four, you go back to one. It made you concentrate because no one wanted to be the one to make you go back to one. And as a receiver, I'm on the end watching the ball, and these big linemen are tired. They're upset about doing it. You didn't want to be the rookie that's jumping offside making him them go back to number one. They'd kill you after the practice. So, Just that uh, way he put it, it made you focus, and you didn't make a mistake for 10 plays. It sounds easy, but it's not easy. And if you did it in a practice, you can do it in a game. That was his uh, analogy for it. Do it in practice, run 10 perfect plays, you run 10 perfect plays in a game. Because his main thing was don't beat yourself. And dumb penalties make great teams beat themselves. So I give all the credit to Coach Shuler to come up with that session called Perfect plays, and I guarantee you, uh, young teachers and coaches out there, they could take this and use it with their teams. If you can get those guys to concentrate on what a segment called perfect plays, then they're more than likely to have perfect plays during the game.
3: Oh man, I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to have to write that down and kind of use Shula as a, uh, as a basis on how I want to coach if I ever get into coaching.
2: Yes, yeah, so you couldn't follow a, a better uh, mentor than Coach Shula, and uh, just a great guy who demanded a lot out of you, but. Uh, he brought the best out of you, and I remember he told me when he had a little one-on-one with me, he said, you come to high school, you're kind of cocky there, but I'm not worried about that. That's going to leave you, and you're going to uh, do well. And he made me a better practice player, James, and for that, I I appreciate him. He was just, uh, he brought the best out. He told me, Duriel, if you don't do it in practice, how will I know you're going to do it in the game? So that made me a better practice player and a better player. So big hats off to Coach Sewell, one of the greatest coaches ever lived.
3: Oh, yeah, no doubt, and uh, we're running out of time, and we're uh, ready, ready to set up for the second hour.
2: Well, we have to take a out here for more of the Jordy Haltberg show uh, coming up here on one of the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Welcome back to the Jolly Harbuck Show. I'm your special guest Duriel Harris, and we're going to talk a little LSU football. Uh, talking with RP Three said, "Duriel, there's one man you want to talk to about anything Tigers, and that man is Matthew Bruni." Hey, guy, how are you doing?
1: Hey, there, I'm doing. Thanks for having.
2: Me. Hey, it's, it's great to, to have you on of uh, Go Two Four Seven Sports. Hey, listen, uh, let's talk a little LSU football. We just had the, the media days. Uh, How did Coach Kelly do at the uh, media days?
1: Um, I thought he was great. He was obviously, I mean, anyone who's who's listened to him speak before knows how calculated he is. Just smart he is, uh, always um, engaged with the question, does a great job at getting his point across really eloquently. So, um, yeah, he he killed it. He was great. Um, Obviously, the national media will always to him about Notre Dame and so forth, so he had to take a couple question but um you know when when we got him he was able to answer talk recruiting talk to quarterback he was able to talk about a, a myriad of different you know topics and uh, did a great job so I, I think he um you know his first time at sec media day went really well
2: good uh i noticed today they came out with the rankings and lsu was ranked fifth to finish fifth in the sec west uh, you think that's a fair prediction
1: I I had them fourth in my poll. Um, I think fourth and fifth, and they were only I think uh, like they weren't too far behind Ole Miss in in terms of the voters' um, rankings. So you know, there's some wiggle room there between fourth and fifth. Um, I think around that rank is reasonable for what you would expect a national media to project for them. Right, um, you know, coming off back to back five hundred seasons uh you know you're gonna have the um you know alabama arkansas and so on uh, of them but when you get to that ole miss range uh most of the time i think you can maybe put lsu above them but i I think for the most part it's pretty fair i don't think anybody expects them to be projected as a you know top 15 team in the country or or higher i think this is where they're gonna have to and that kind of reflects that
2: Right. Well, they're in the S C C West. I mean, you know, to, to finish fifth, that's not the worst thing for a, a young team and a new coach. Uh, but hopefully they'll do a, uh, better and finish higher than, than fifth. Uh, what about the, the, the QB battle that's going on here? Who do you think should win that QB job this year for the Tigers?
1: Ah, oh, man. <laughs> it is, it's tough because it, no matter how much I get asked about it, the answer doesn't get any easier. For me, um, I really trust Kelly and Denbrock and who, whoever they're going to pick to put best position. So that's my default answer, <laughs> personally. When I, when in doubt, I like going with the quarterback with the most upside and the most talent. And I think that's Garrett Nussmeyer. I think Garrett Nussmeyer has the potential to be special. Uh, while I think Miles Brennan is a very good quarterback, and I think Jaden Daniels' legs offer obviously a different dynamic. Garrett Nussmeyer as a playmaker of And the way way he throws the ball, to me, is just on another level. And I think for that reason, I would give him the first shot to go out there against Florida State.
2: Now, what about the offense that Kelly is going to run? Does that suit one quarterback over the other?
1: Um, You know, I think when they brought in Jaden Daniels, it made sense because I think, you know, Mike Brock and Kelly might want a little bit more of a mobile guy, a guy who Create um, with his legs a bit more, especially with, with an offensive line with so much turnover and question marks. It, w- it makes sense to have a guy like Daniels or even Nussmeier who is mobile. Um, however, one thing they've stressed a lot is getting the ball to playmakers in space. And Miles Brendan, if nothing else, is an accurate guy and can deliver the ball on time and on target. So I think there's there's ways you can frame this to where any of the quarterbacks. And that's why, for me, I keep going back to, well, who has the most talent? Who's the most talented quarterback? And I think that's Nussmeier. Um, maybe Brennan comes out and you know shows everybody that he's been waiting for this opportunity his whole life, and he does a great job. Or maybe Daniels, uh, who is the most experienced, can can take the reins. But for now, I'm I'm on the Nussmeier train.
2: And I like a guy with some mobility because you know that quarterback position has changed over the years. yeah but- Anyway, let's talk a little about the offensive line. You know, last two seasons, there was a big issue. Uh, Who are the players that uh, need to step up for the Tigers this year?
1: Yeah, I mean, they went to the transfer portal, uh, pulled Saman Shorts and Miles Frazier from lower levels and brought them up to – were very, very – at those levels. But you bring them in, you add Will Campbell, the five-star freshman uh, who could – left tackle this season – and those are the three guys, the three newcomers that you look at and be like, those those guys probably need to contribute and need to be good for this offensive line. Mm-hmm. As far as returner goes, you have Cam Wire um, at one of the tackle positions. You presume right tackle, and then you have a lot of guys you you don't really know a ton about. Garrett Dellinger's battled some injuries. Charles Turner at center, he he started in the spring. We're not really sure. You know, Marlon Martinez, Anthony Bradford, Go- it, there's question marks. There's plenty of question marks. So sure. you you need those numbers that I mentioned to, to be solid, and you need wire to be that returner that has experience, and then you kind of just fill in from there. So it's definitely a question mark. It's something Coach Kelly talked about as something they need to get sorted out, and that's definitely a talking point and a point to, to watch for going into the fall.
2: Sure. You know, lately LSU can be called – You know, wide receiver, you. You've guys had some great receivers uh, go on and do well in the NFL. So, right now, I know we have a a ton of young talent wide receiver, including a few right here in Acadiana. Who do you think, uh, or how's this rotation going to work with all that talent?
1: Yeah, it's top dog is Keyshawn Boutte, arguably the best receiver in the country. And so, once you obviously, with that being established, you know, no doubt Keyshawn should have put up great numbers you know should be a 10 15 draft pick in the NFL next year with that being said then you get into all right who else is going to step up right and jack best last year led the team in receptions was very very good very good as a true freshman i expect him to get put up very uh, numbers again malik neighbors i loved coming out of spring so when you look at this you know who's the second best receiver get best and neighbors as two guys who should be in that conversation, if not, you know, the best or the second and third best receivers, respectively. Then you go Brian Thomas, Jure Jenkins, Kyron Lacy, who transferred in from UL, um, Chris Hilton. And so, yeah, you get a lot of names here, a lot of mouths, so to speak. But I think it all starts with Boutte. Boutte has the season he's capable of. I think it opens up a lot for this offense.
2: Now, looking on the defensive side, the last couple of years, LSU have had some real – Shutdown type cornerbacks, uh, they're gone now. And uh, you think anybody's going to step up to be a shutdown corner this year? or that position going to still show a lack of experience? How do you feel about the the corners that the LSU has?
1: Yeah, I, I don't think there's a you know Derek Stingley in his prime. I don't um, you know there's not that level of playmaker out there. However, they went to the transfer portal. They brought in Jerick Bernard and Gardner. From Oklahoma State and U. L. Uh, respectively, they all brought in seven banks from Ohio State. So, you know, at the cornerback position, you sh- between those two as your boundary guys, or you should have solid corner. Like it should be the weakness of this defense by any means. And then, you know, even if you go and bump inside to nickel, uh, you know, guys to guard the slot and tight ends or whatnot. Greg Brooks has been a, was a starter at Arkansas for three plus years. Like this, this is a group that has ample experience. And kind of just needs to come to this point, as does you know the entire the new coaching staff. But the the secondary is going to need to come together because it's, they're coming from all different places across the country in this kind of remodeled secondary. So I think it's going to be a good secondary, good corners, but um, you know I'm, I don't think there's, there's a Derek Stingley, you know NFL first round draft
2: pick here. Yeah, those guys are come few and far between. I uh, haven't been keeping up that much with the Tigers. Have they announced who's gonna be wearing number seven?
1: Yeah, so Kaisha Boutte will be wearing number seven. he's he's the one um, they haven't announced any number eighteen at this moment, but Keisha Boutte as number seven is is the one that has been announced so far.
2: Oh, that's great. Good. Happy he went to a wide receiver to wear that number because I know that means a lot when lSU designated number four player. Uh, it puts a little bit of added pressure on, but I think these guys they have can can definitely rise to the occasion.
1: Yeah, definitely, and there was a lot of talk about him stepping up as a leader, uh, him embracing that, and a lot of players, you know, trusting him in that role. He's someone who, he missed the last half of last season. There was talk about him maybe transferring with the coaching change, and he came back, uh, missed his injury, but by all accounts, he's been great in the locker room and a great um, you know, model for younger players. So I think the number seven is is a big deal to get it to him this year.
2: Well, when you look at the offense, you think the the play calling is going to be a little different this year in the Kelly, or will it look more like the uh, LSU offensive of old?
1: I, I think it's going to be interesting, and I think it looks a, it'll look a little different. Um, now, Brian Kelly, um, in his career as a head coach, has had a more conservative offenses. You know. Some two tight end type stuff, some um, offense, some offenses around. You know, strong offensive line. This is going to be the most talent he's had at receiver in his entire career. And I think, with that being the case, I think that it's, they're going to have a more open offense than I think we've ever seen. Some, you know, Notre Dame team under Brian Kelly. So I'm excited to see what they do with that because there's there's no shortage of explosive playmakers here. Uh, if they get a quarterback that they like that can make some plays, you know, whoever that is between the three, they find a the quarterback, you have playmakers, they can open up the offense, take some shots downfield. I think it's going to be a really, really interesting and exciting year for, for them.
2: Yeah, well, let's hope uh, they do take advantage of all that talent they have at the wide out. And, you know, great coaches adapt to the personnel. So we'll see what they do with that. And hopefully, we'll, uh, you know, use the deep ball quite a bit as a weapon and uh, make everybody happy. Oh, hey, Matthew. Sure. Yeah, I like exactly. That. Thank you, Matthew, for, for coming on from Go247 Sports. Uh, I uh, appreciate having you here because they say you're the man, everything LSU, and me being a newcomer to the area, I need to be uh, on the fast track to learn more about those Tigers. So thanks a lot, and I look forward to having you back on again, okay?
1: Yep, thanks for having me on any time.
2: All right, have a good one. All right, well, welcome back. We have to take a time out and uh, – we're going to come up here on the uh, show. Is 103.7 Lafayette, 104.1 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's Sports Station, your home of the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros.
0: Time to open up the vault for the games this day in sports history. July 22, 1967. The Atlanta Braves establish an MLB record for number of pitchers called upon in one inning. Five used in the ninth inning of a 5-4 loss to St. Louis. That was this day in sports history. We now return to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
3: You watched his TV specials. You listened to his podcast. Now you can see comedian Burt Kreischer live in person at the Cajun Dome. On September 16th and you can do it so with a text to score tickets join the games text club by texting BERT B-E-R-T to 337-283-8100 that's BERT to 337-283-8100 once you are a member you will be eligible to win tickets to see Burt Kreischer live at the Cajun Dome courtesy of the games text club
2: welcome back to the Johnny Hallberg show I'm Durrell Harris a special guest host man James, what a great session we've had so far with our guests. I mean, we started off with the big guy himself, RP3, giving us all the recap from Atlanta. And then we got with uh, Matthew Bruni of Go247 Sports. I I really enjoyed that conversation with Matthew. Uh, You know, being new to the area and not that familiar with the Tigers, he really gave me a sense of what to expect this year out of those guys. I'm just looking forward to having him on again. Uh, Very knowledgeable of the Tigers and a really good guy. Uh, For an interview, so it was great having him on. I look forward to the uh, the next guest coming. The three o'clock hour, we've got uh, uh, Ross Jackson from Locked On Saints to talk everything Saints football, and I'm sure that'll be quite interesting as well to hear more about the home team.
3: Oh yeah, I got I got all those guys for you because they're good and they they're all reliable. They they give you really good information, and you feel like you got a better sense of how the team is going. Since I mean, they're so close to the teams.
2: Well, you get my vote, Jane, for booking those one of the guests, and uh, I'll put your name in the hat for that raise for this week. <laughs> you did a great job.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, I think what we should do. I mean, we've done it so far. Why not continue? I mean, talk more football.
2: Okay, sounds good to me.
3: Uh, I mean, do you 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 must have like favorite memories of being in the NFL and being with the Dolphins?
2: Yeah, uh, being with a great team. I have lots of memories. Uh, the one that always comes around every football season. Uh, my phone will start ringing late at night, and somebody will be on the phone and say, Hey, they're showing you on TV again. The hook and ladder. I say, Oh, not again. <laughs> but uh, every year they use that play uh, to show people that when the play works, what it looks like. And uh, the play was uh, a great play for us. It's still the number one play in Dolphin history. Uh, recently, NFL had his. 100 greatest plays since the game been played, and that play came out ranked in, in the low 40s. So uh, I think it was like, what,
3: 43? Uh, yeah,
2: 43. So we did something right. We made the top 100. <laughs> we're number one with the Dolphins, and all on a play that never worked in practice. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that, that's funny how you always kind of look at old teams and like Super Bowl teams where they talk about big plays that happened. And they – is always the whole well, the player that made the play that they really struggled like i remember for the patriots whenever malcolm butler had that game winning interception against the seahawks yeah they were they were kind of going back on it on the nfl network network and they were saying like all week malcolm butler was struggling against that exact same play like he he kept going i think over over the block instead of just undercutting it and he finally undercut it when it really mattered, and that, that's, how, that's how you won the Super Bowl.
2: He was famous for that play, and, and what a great time to do it. I think he was a free agent, <laughs> and so that really helped him out the next year for us, you know, getting his paycheck.
3: Oh, yeah, no doubt. And uh, speaking of the hook and ladder, I, I do have the the play from the, the live call of it. Really?
0: Oh, yeah. Seconds left. Fox stopped with six seconds to go. <laughs> Eight first downs, all passing. Uh, what are you going to do? Make a nice four-yard gain in that position? Hard pro. Several weeks ago, it's in the playbook. It's a great
2: play by, by Dorial Harris to hit him on a dead run. It's not something you work on every day. It takes great players to execute it. They made it in, a, in an unbelievable moment. Wow, man! I, I've heard that over, over and over again. It's, it's uh, was done back in the 80s. And James, I still get goosebumps when I hear that. Man, it is, it's just amazing. The play never worked in practice. We try it. Either I would drop the ball or I would catch it, and when I pitched it to Tony Nathan, he would drop it, but all credit goes to Coach Shula, a playoff game, and he calls the hook and lateral, and I left the huddle thinking, James, this is not going to (laughs) work.
3: You got to have have a real set on you to make that kind of call.
2: Yeah, I mean, because I was ready to just catch the ball and run with it and get as many yards as I can, but... Thank God the ball was thrown off to my left and I couldn't run. I had to dive to catch it first. So once I caught it, I knew I couldn't go anywhere. I said, What the heck? Just pitch it and see what happens. So I pitched the ball and my momentum carries me over, over, and over again, rolling. And I hear the crowd screaming. First thought came to my mind was, Oh no, he fumbled. <laughs> then when I finally stopped rolling, I look up and all I see is Tony Nathan raising his hand going in zone. I said, I'm glad I pitched it. <laughs> <laughs> Shula would have killed me.
3: I'm glad I did what Shula said.
2: Right, he would kill me right down the fifty yard line.
3: Oh man, or the, I mean, that was a that's a famous play right there. But do you have any other ones that really like stick to you?
2: Yeah, there's there's some other plays I hit uh, Monday night against the Patriots. I, I catch a, the winning touchdown end zone between two players, and I tell you, the ball got there in the lights, James, and you you have an idea where it's going to be. So I just threw my hands up. And luckily, we're in the right place, the ball hit and stuck because I lost sight of the ball when it got about four yards from me and uh, just made an honest effort. And she, next thing I know, the ball's in my hand, and uh, it's a touchdown, win the game. I was like, wow. I looked out there, you know. But sometimes it happens like that because you, you make the effort. And uh, you're, you're, you're true with that. You believe in it. And then things just happen that way. Because things happen on that football field. It, it's so fast. You never have time to really think about it. You just react and do it. And you're surprised sometimes at how you react. Or you put a move on a guy. It wasn't rehearsed. But you just go the opposite way. I say, wow, you know, that wasn't planned. But it's just a reaction. You learn to react at hyper hyperspeed. Because the game is such a fast game. It's, it's a fun game. Uh, I enjoyed my 10 years playing. It was a, a childhood dream come true. So, hey, I have no complaints about it.
3: Did, and, and during your time, and I mean, growing up, what what made you want to play football?
2: Well, my father coached in high school, and I can remember being about four years old, uh, gave me one of the team's jerseys, and I'm wearing it around the house <laughs> as a as as pajama or a nightgown. <laughs> it came down to my ankles. And... Just my father played college football, and being a coach, it just kept me around the game. And we never talked about what I wanted to do. We would just always go out and practice together. He would talk me through different scenarios. And having a father who was a coach and a former quarterback— it made it great that I wanted to play wide receiver because I had my quarterback right there. And he would throw the ball, James, right at my head. If I didn't catch it, I'd be missing a tooth, you know. So <laughs> he made me have good hands by just throwing them at my head all the time. But he would uh, take me through drills, and I guess I gained confidence through his confidence in me that I could uh, play this game at the next level. And we would you know, talk about it around the dinner table and would drive my mother crazy. But uh, <laughs> he could see uh, the future, and he told me I would – Get to college, and when I got there, he said, "Hey, you're going to have to play the next level." And sure enough, uh, I got drafted in the third round of '76 because Miami didn't have a second round pick, and uh, turned into a ten year career. So, not bad for a guy coming from Port Arthur, Texas, and a little small school called Stephen F. Austin.
3: (laughs) I love it. Uh, Did you? So, I mean, did you have anybody that you idolized, like watching on in college or in the NFL? Was there anyone that you kind of maybe modeled your game after?
2: Well, there were all kind of guys. I I grew up in such a hot bed down in Southeast Texas. There's some high school guys I I idolized in high school, and they were, like, great. So when I got older and I saw those guys didn't make it, I said, man, if they couldn't make it, how am I going to make it? But every situation is different, you know, and I just stuck to it and kept at it and got better and better at the game. And then finally – uh, my junior year, I started getting the offers from from pro teams, and next thing I know, I'm getting drafted by the Dolphins. And uh, you, you got to go there with confidence because you're you're a professional now, and uh, your adversary, or the guy you're competing with for a job, is not going to tell you you're great, you know, because he don't want you to take his job. So you have to come in with a lot of confidence, believe in yourself, and that's the way I approached it. And I never forget <clears throat> my mental thought was that, hey, Dorial, these guys are no better than you; they were just born before you. And that's the attitude I had, and I went after everybody and challenged them, and I didn't didn't avoid anyone. I loved going against the number one guys on the defense because hey, if I could beat them, I could show the coach, hey, this guy's ready to play. So I always look for the toughest guy to go against in practice because I just had confidence that I, uh, that they couldn't cover me one on one, and most times they couldn't. So uh, having that belief and the ability to go with it really made it uh, easy for me to have a good path to be successful in the NFL.
3: So I mean, in, in your time, I'm. Is there an unstoppable move that you have? Is there like a favorite route that that you like?
2: No, just get me the ball. <laughs> <laughs> You'll run whatever. Yeah, all routes are popular if you're getting the ball, but I did like the uh, the post-corner route we had. Ooh, okay. uh, That was a route where you get to use that uh, a good double move sometime. And I love it because you could really uh, fake the DB off the screen. You know, we didn't – I don't want to be open, but we like to be in film rooms And where you can run the other guy off the screen. And <laughs> when they throw the ball, you're the only one there. You really feel good because you cleared the space. But, yeah, just uh, getting uh, knowing the ball, they're calling your number. I, I always want the ball in the in – in those tough situations when it was third and 11 or you had to have a first down. I, I took it myself. Hey, give, give me the ball. Call my number. And, and you know, I'm going to I'm gonna make the play. And, you know, sometimes you don't, but you still got to have that attitude. I'm going to get the next one. And that's the attitude I had. I always wanted the pressure on me. I feel like I could handle it. And uh, a lot of times they did come to me and I, I came through for them. And, uh that was, I guess, the hallmark of my career that Coach Shula gained confidence in me year after year to where when we needed to play, he would call my number, and I just tried to come through every time he called it.
3: Oh, yeah. And, I mean, so you you, you always got to have that shooter's mentality where it's like, I mean, even if I didn't make the play, I'll make the next one. Exactly. I'm going to make the next one.
2: When the ball go up in the area, <clears throat> it's my football. That's the way I want to oh, yeah. look at it. It's my ball, not yours. I'm going to do <laughs> what I can to get it.
3: Oh, man. I mean, for me, I would say if I'm running a short route, Slants slants easy one. Love love running slants. If I'm running a double move, I I like a post corner, but I like doing an out and up. Where I mean you're running like a five yard out, right. you look at it, quarterback pump fix and then you just turn up on the sideline, and, a, and you throw it to me. It's
2: a great play against the right uh, defensive player. you got a defensive back that's aggressive, we'd call that play, because some guys are aggressive. Some guys wait and lay back. But if you've got a guy that's biting on the first move, want to make the tackle, run right the line of scrimmage, you run it out and up on him, and you'll just leave the guy in his, in his tracks. and He's 40 yards behind you, but it's a, it's a great play.
3: And then, I mean, who, who doesn't love a, a good post? Oh, you, you split the safeties. And you go between them, and then you just throw the Bob Greasy or whoever your quarterback is. You just th- throw it over the top, and I'm and I'm gone. And let me let me turn on the Jets.
2: It's it's a great play. I came into the league uh, with, with pretty good speed, and I was known as a as a, a deep threat. But I really took pride in running great routes because uh, I was told a long time ago, hey, if you could practice the route running, the other stuff th- you have natural ability to go deep, practice on on the on the route running part of the game because. Uh, in, the, in my area, it wasn't too many guys could run fast would go across the middle and catch the ball. You know, they didn't want to get hit. And, uh, but I would always go across the middle and, and, and sacrifice to bite and lay on the line, and that just made me, I think, a, a better receiver because I was more than just a, a one-way threat to go deep.
3: Did, did you do a 40-yard dash? Like, did you ever time yourself?
2: In my, in my rookie uh, year for training camp, I had the fastest time out of all the uh, guys in camp. And it wasn't my best uh, time. I ran a 4-5-1 in minicamp, but my best time was like a four four five, I believe it was. I ran for the scouts. So I was a little bit unhappy with that, that <laughs> time, but it was the fastest in the, in the camp of all the rookies. So that made me stand out. People started looking at me. Hey, he outran everybody. Let, let's watch him. And then, of the course, reporters want to call on you, and they think you got an eye on a guy who's going to come in and contribute right away. They all want to get in front of you and get that <laughs> autograph, I mean, that, that interview.
3: Oh, yeah. I, I know for me, I mean, Matt Miguez and I, our own show, we we do our own little sports challenges. We did a a, a combine a couple weeks ago, and one of them was the 40-yard dash. And I mean, I, I haven't really been running lately. I've been busy with the job and everything. And right. So I'm, I haven't really been done, doing any training, and I ran a <laughs> – for the first time of not really running or running consistently in a while, I, I ran a 4.8, which isn't bad.
2: No, not at all. Yeah. I, <laughs> bless you, young man. <laughs> if I tried to get there and run one now, I would be slower than that. So, hey, 4.8 is great, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah.
3: And I think Matt ran a – his fastest was like a 6.35. Wow. <laughs> put, him right, on, put him on the O-line.
2: Quarterback times. <laughs> oh,
3: the, the old stone-in-the-pocket QBs. Right, right. Oh yeah, uh, this this has been this has been really good. I'm, I'm glad I've been able to talk to you about football so far.
2: It's been great having a a producer and a wide receiver in the booth to help me out here on my first time in. I really enjoyed having you and, and talking football with you. But right now we have to take a break. Uh, more of the Johnny Hallberg show uh, coming up. The game one zero three seven Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, your home for the LSU Tigers and the Houston Astros.
0: Great news, my sports-loving friend. No more aimlessly searching for sports talk love by swiping left or right. That's because you've already found the perfect match. For sports talk love, that is... Now, back to the only lover you'll ever need. The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station.
3: The Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com can help you with your date night blues. That's because once you become a member of our Wars club, you will have the opportunity to win excellent prizes like a $150 gift certificate to Mr. Lester Steakhouse at Cypress Bayou or a $50 gift certificate to Half-Shell Oyster House, or a $25 gift certificate to Mabel's Kitchen. But you can only score these great prizes by becoming a member of the Game Clubhouse at 1037thegame.com or 1041thegame.com. It's free, it's simple, so sign up today.
2: Welcome back to the Jordy Haltberg Show. I'm your special guest host, Duriel Harris. Coming up here on the game, we've got Ross Jackson from Locked On Saints to talk a little bit about the Saints this year. Hey, Ross Jackson, Duriel Harris, how are you? My man, glad to be here with you, buddy. Thanks so much for having me on. Hey, it's my pleasure. When I was talking <laughs> with the RP3 about the Saints, he said, Durial, that's one guy you've got to talk to. He said, that's Ross <laughs> Jackson. So, hey, thank you for coming on because uh, I'm as nice up to the Saints, as I will be. So I'll be looking uh, forward to you kind of getting me caught up to speed on these New Orleans Saints. They're my number one team after the Dolphins.
5: I love it. I love it. Hey, look, I, I tend to be a big fan of the Dolphins over in the AFC as well. So when they asked me to come on and talk to me, I was like, oh, yeah, this is a perfect match.
2: Well, perfect well, match. I'm well, ready. Well, thank you. Look, <laughs> let's talk a little Saints football. Uh, mm-hmm. who, what do you think of this news? I just heard that they're putting Michael Thomas and Davenport on the physically unable to perform list.
5: Yeah, so thankfully this is ahead of training camp. So it's not that big of a deal. It's not the same thing as if they were putting him on the PUP list at the beginning of the season. If that happens, and those guys would be guaranteed to miss, you know, a handful of games or so, and then have a couple of weeks that they could try to get back out on the field. And if they couldn't get there, then they would go to season-long IR. That's what happened with uh, Michael Thomas last year. But in this case, since they're going on PUP before training camp, as opposed to before the season, this basically just means: look, these guys are going to miss a little bit of camp. So we're not going to sit here and pretend like they're not gonna, that they're going to be out there. We're going to increase our roster flexibility a, a, a little bit. Because they can take these guys off of that PUP list, so that physically unable to perform list, at any time during training camp. So this isn't as big a deal as if it would have happened right before the regular season, for instance. Right. We knew that Michael Thomas was going to be a slow ramp-up, sort of, once he got started in camp. Marcus Davenport had a finger amputated or part of a finger amputated this off season. Wow. A lot of reasons that make sense for these guys not to be out there at, at training camp, but they'll be able to take these guys off the list with maximum flexibility, and they can do it as early as tomorrow or a couple weeks in when these guys are likely going to be ready.
2: Now, on Michael's case, though, he's been out. Is this his third season to come back from an injury? or How long has he been out?
5: So so he missed the entirety of last season and then missed about half of that 2020 season, came back for the playoffs, things like that, toward the end. Okay. But the thing about it is that you know Michael Thomas had that injury back in 2020 in the first game of the season, so people kind of look at it as, why has it taking this guy two years to get right. back on the field from an ankle injury? But something to remember here is that he had a surgery around June, July of last season to repair the ankle. There was some complications there. I believe it was a tightrope procedure that you know, was botched. And so he had to go back into surgery. I believe it was in November, if I remember correctly. So he's really recovering from the ankle injury the surgery, which was botched, and then a corrective surgery on top of that, which he's only about nine months removed from. So in terms of the corrective surgery, he's right on schedule effectively with some of the longer-lasting things tied to the previous surgery with that.
2: Yeah, that makes it seem like it's the the same thing going on for a long time when you go have corrective surgery at the same time. Uh, injury. Now what about the uh, the receiver core? The, the Saints were, were busy this offseason. You've added Jord, uh, Jarvis Landry and you've got mm-hmm. Chris Olave, the number one draft choice, and Michael Thomas, a uh, healthy Michael Thomas. What about the guys that played last year? Out of that group of receivers from last year, who do you think will be able to rise to that fourth spot as far as a fourth receiver on the team?
5: Yeah, look, I think Marquez Callaway is one of the guys to really pay attention to. The Saints really, really liked him. He was their leading receiver last year, though they didn't have any receiver across any position, you know, scratch 800 yards or anything like that. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, obviously there's some there's some things that are tied to that with injuries across quarterback position, offensive line, and even to those receivers themselves. But I think Marquez Callaway is one of those guys that's very much in line to be the fourth or fifth guy. Traquan Smith will be in there as well because of his knowledge of the system and his value in the past. Excuse me, in the run game. But Deontay Hardy's another one in there, too, that we shouldn't forget about. Deontay mm-hmm. Hardy, of course, was Deontay Harris last year, changed his last name okay. uh, over the course at, at some point in the season to honor his stepfather, uh, which is a really, really great story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Deontay is somebody to definitely keep an eye out on. It'll be interesting to see if they want to push him to a little bit more of a special teams role back to where he was you know, a rookie all-pro his first season as a returner as opposed to being utilized most consistently on offense. But certainly he'll still get in the – He'll still get in the rhythm on offense, of course, sure. uh, throughout all that. But there are some other guys that are pulling up you know, the bottom of that roster that are going to be, or let's say the bottom of the depth chart, that are going to be you know, able to compete for spots. Nichols, statewide receiver, undrafted this year. Uh, Dejon Dixon's a big one to watch. Kirk Merritt, another local guy, he's a big one to watch as well. He's, of course, got some NFL experience, even with those Miami Dolphins that you know so well. And so, you know, these are a couple of other guys to to keep an eye out on throughout the uh, course of training camp.
2: Mm -hmm. Speaking of rookies, what about rookie defensive lineman uh, Jordan Jackson? you think he can uh, make an impact this year on the field?
5: The way that I've kind of spoken about Jordan Jackson is that, obviously, you want to keep, you know, some some reservations around expectation considering the fact that he's, you know, a six-round selection and stuff. So he's kind of in that same class of people that are competing, you know, toward the bottom of the depth chart and things like that. But... I think that Jordan Jackson's skill set will be something that will jump off of the field throughout training camp because he just plays defensive line with a style that's very different than the other guys on the roster for the New Orleans Saints. particularly those interior defenders and really, honestly, the edge rushers as well. They're like big, powerful guys that can push their you know, blocker into the lap of a quarterback. Jordan Jackson plays a very athletic, very agile, uh, very quick-paced style of interior defensive line, particularly as a pass rusher. He'll need you know to show what he can provide in terms of the run game and everything like that's going to be first and foremost in any defense material across the NFL. But I think that he's somebody, if, if his game gets going and if his style starts to work, in those opportunities where he's going up against second, third string guys, that he might get himself some first team snaps every now and then because his style of play is going to differ so much from anybody else on the roster outside of maybe Contavia Street on the interior that that's going to be something that should catch eyes if he gets it to click early on in camp.
2: Okay. What about the old line? You know, they've had their problems, but will, will Cesar Ruiz uh, have a have competition at right guard?
5: I think that the, Cesar Ruiz's competition at right guard is going to be contingent upon what happens at left tackle between the battle of Trevor Penning, who the Saints drafted with their second first-round selection this season, and uh, James Hurst, the veteran that they're very comfortable with, starting at left tackle if Trevor Penning isn't ready to go immediately. There's no pressure to get Trevor Penning going right off the bat. So that's good news for New Orleans. But if Trevor Penning does come out there and show, hey, this is my job and I'm taking it, and this is mine for in, in perpetuity at this point, James Hurst will very likely get looks on the interior spots, including competing with Cesar at right guard. So I think it might be a little bit contingent upon what happens with the battle of James Hurst and uh, Trevor Penning. But if there's somebody else that rises up into that conversation, I would keep an eye out on Calvin Throckmorton. His versatility is really valuable, but he has been able to step into the interior spots and, and provide some good play there. But the first and foremost hope is that the addition of Doug Marone Who, of course, they're bringing him back to New Orleans as offensive coordinator many years ago. But he is a a phenomenal developer of offensive line talent, and is coming in with a very, let's just say, removed eye. Right? He's seeing these guys for the first time. He has no loyalty to any of these guys in terms Mm of you know past years or anything like that. So he should be able to come in and be a little bit more objective around the offensive line, but should be able to help a guy like Cesar Ruiz develop quickly, and that's certainly something we'll be watching during camp starting up next week.
2: Sure. Now, just for, as a novice that doesn't really know the Saints, it uh, seemed like it's some some games the secondary is being picked on. Uh, who's going to be the odd man out in that secondary, you think?
5: Um, look, I, I think that the Saints in the secondary – they actually have a potential to be very strong here going into 2022. I think the biggest question marks you're going to have are going to be how do Marcus May and Tyron Matthew fit together, right? The new additions this offseason, mm-hmm. after losing Marcus Williams, who went to the Baltimore Ravens in free agency, and then Malcolm Jenkins, of course, retired this offseason. But how did Tyron Matthew, as well as uh, how did Tyron Matthew and, and, and Marcus May get to working together? How? And then the other question is going to be what happens at cornerback opposite. Marshawn Lattimore, because they drafted Alante Taylor in the second round. That's the cornerback spot that's going to get the most attention, because are going to be a lot, of, a lot of quarterbacks going away from
1: Marshawn Lattimore.
5: And so those cornerbacks, whoever ends up out on top, if it's Paulson Adibo, uh, uh, Alante Taylor, and I think you have to include Bradley Roby, who they traded for at the beginning of last season as well in that conversation. Whoever it is that goes up there, which I personally think that's Paulson Adibo's job to lose, Mm -hmm. that's going to be the cornerback spot to watch over the course of training camp and going into 2022. But the Saints have done a great job this offseason building up competition in the secondary because you know better than anybody else, there is not a position out there that's going to lose you more games with bad play then cornerback, at least not as quickly. Yes. And so that cornerback spot is going to be a big one to shore up.
2: And especially in that NFC uh, West, some of the teams you play, they've got some fantastic right. receivers. So uh, who's ever out there in that position, they're going to be tested. I I can guarantee you that. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah,
5: absolutely. I mean, you're going to be looking to match up with some big receivers over there, too. guys like Drake London who just got drafted. Kyle Pitts, who's going into his second year. Mike Evans, of course, is still one of the better receivers in the NFL. I mean, even just the stature of these guys requires your cornerbacks to be very versatile. They've got to be able to be proficient in both man coverage and zone coverage. They have to be physical off the line, but have the speed to be able to carry some of these guys downfield. It's not an easy job in that division.
2: What about uh, the big defensive tackle, uh, Tuttle? You think he'll be on the depth chart and make the team? Yeah,
5: I think as of right now, he's probably the guy that you should pencil in to start next to David Onyemata. But there will be a, an open competition there, I think, next to Dio, because you know, look, you brought in Contavious Street, who's who's a veteran, Jalil Johnson, who's a veteran. You have a couple of other familiar faces. You have a really, really solid uh, undrafted free agent coming out of Syrac- Syracuse and Joshua Black, another guy that's really, really athletic at that, you know, in that interior defensive line. Malcolm Roach who's really versatile. So, you know, there's going to be competition there. It's going to be open. But the thing about the New Orleans Saints defensive line is that they kind of rotate that hockey, that, that, uh, that defensive line the way that hockey teams rotate their lineups. You'll watch after a down, four guys run off and four brand new guys run on. Right. And, you know, they rotate these guys like crazy. So you don't have to be a starter to get meaningful snaps on the defensive line, particularly on the interior for New Orleans. But I think that Shai Tuttle right now is the guy that you would want to pencil in at the top of that rotation, right. but watching that competition over the course of camp will be interesting.
2: Right. Now, since you're the man, all things Saints, I've got to get you on record. What do you think uh, will be the Saints' <laughs> record this year? Give me your thoughts on that.
5: I have pegged them as either a 10-7 and 7 or 11-16. and 16. Look, last year they finished 9-8. and 8. They won a game without their head coach in Sean Payton with Taysom Hill at quarterback and Dennis Allen as their as their interim head coach. They won nine games that season despite the fact that they started 58 different players, which is an NFL record. They started four different quarterbacks and four different kickers. This year, you're looking for continuity at quarterback with Jameis Winston. You're looking at continuity at kicker with Will Lutz back, cleared, ready to go. That kicker position alone lost them two, maybe even three games in 2020-21. to 21. So I think even that alone and then more health over on the offensive side. An underrated, sort of undervalued, and undercovered move that the Saints made this offseason was bringing in Matt Rea, the former uh, director of sports science at Alabama. When Alabama bought into his practices, they dropped their soft tissue injuries 50%. I think all of that will help New Orleans, the continuity there, the health there, all of those things, be a winning team and a double-digit win team in 2022.
2: Oh, great. Hey, Ross, thanks a lot for that inside information. And you can listen to Ross Jackson on Locked on Saints. Hey, I appreciate you. We look forward to talking with you during the season. Thanks for coming on.
5: Abs. Absolutely, brother. Take care, be safe, and uh, have a good one. Appreciate you.
2: Great. We have to take a timeout now from the Jordy Hart show, Hartberg show. You listen to the game, 103.7 Lafayette, 104.1 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station your home of the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Welcome back to the Johnny Haltberg show. I'm your special guest host, Durial Harris with the producer extraordinaire James Mesh. It's been great working with you, guy, and Also, want to thank our guests uh, Ross Jackson from Locked On Saints, uh, Locked On Saints, and Matthew Bruni from Go Two Four Seven Sports. Great guests we had lined up today, and James did a great job getting them on. And I got to give a shout out to the big guy, RP Three, Freshman Atlanta. He still was able to get on and and be a guest and help walk me through this first time here at the game. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, Look back to coming back and talking more football. Uh, with you, James, we share some more wide receiver stories. I've got lots of more to share with you and uh, talk to some Saints and some Tigers. By then I'll be well uh, up to speed on the on the talent at the school <laughs> and at the Saints, and they'll they'll make me a bigger fan.
3: Oh, I can't wait. Hopefully we can get you on soon.
2: Yeah, I look forward to it. It's been fun, and uh, what, a, what a great station to, to have the sports down here. And the game uh, here in uh, Lafayette at 103.7 in Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana Sports Station, your home of the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A great station bringing sports to our local Southwest Louisiana.